Psalm 121. It's the passage we're studying today in this brief late winter series on Psalms of Creation. Psalm 121 is where we're at today. In just a few days, our society is going to be celebrating St. Patrick's Day. And for most people in our culture, St. Patrick's Day is little more than a day to wear green or a day to decorate with leprechauns and clovers. Maybe it's a day to get a shamrock shake. Or uh, maybe for you it's just having dinner of uh, corned beef and, and cabbage, right? Very few people in our culture actually associate the day with Patrick. He's a heroic church planter who uh, went to Ireland as a missionary in the early 400s. It's remarkable that very few people know Patrick because his name is actually the most familiar of the early church leaders. It's most familiar in our culture. We're more familiar with him than we are of someone like Augustine. Despite the fact that Patrick's name is known, pretty much nothing else about him is known to our culture. And uh, I want to try to remedy that a little bit today. Before he died, Patrick wrote his confession. It's his testimony of his life. And uh, it's 62 paragraphs long. If you read anyone who's commenting on the confessions, they'll refer to various uh, quotations from it by paragraph. So it'll be like paragraph 18 or paragraph 53. It's just 62 paragraphs. Um, It's about 10 pages. It's not very long. Um, I would encourage you, if you are curious about it, go online and type in Patrick's Confession. It'll come up, a translation of it. You can read all 62 paragraphs in probably like 30 minutes or something, and you can hear this famous early church leader explain something about his life. It begins with the epic words, My name is Patrick. I'm a sinner a simple, uneducated country person. Patrick was born in Britain around 390. And by that time, the gospel had actually been in the Roman colony of Britain for over 200 years. We know, based on some comments, that it was all the way in Britain by at least 190. Patrick goes on to describe how, as a 16-year-old boy, he was captured with thousands of others in Britain by Irish pirates and taken to Ireland to work as a slave. At that time, Ireland was thoroughly pagan and part of their pagan religious rituals actually included on occasion human sacrifice. Archaeologists have uncovered this reality that Ireland was thoroughly and horrifically pagan. Patrick writes in his confession, it was there in Ireland that the Lord opened up my awareness of my lack of faith so that I turned with all my heart to the Lord my God and he looked down on my lowliness when he humbled himself and admitted his sin. Patrick writes, the Lord guarded me before I knew him. And before I came to wisdom, he protected me. 
That's remarkable. Patrick is writing about a time when he was abducted and enslaved. And he says, the Lord guarded me and he protected me. Hmm. I've asked you to turn to Psalm 121. It's a song of protection. And one of the things you might note is that the first line actually indicates that this is a song of ascents or a song that would be sung while ascending to the city of Jerusalem. It would be traditionally sung as Jews would gather in caravans and head to the capital city for one of the three major holidays in their year. We might think of it as like a religious holiday car song, a song that you always sing while you're traveling in the car on a special, special occasion. Psalm 121 reads, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord's your keeper. The Lord's your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil, all harm. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What an encouraging psalm. And I would guess that actually many of us read this psalm and our immediate reaction is cynicism. What? Keep me from all harm? Doesn't seem to match with my experience. The main point of Psalm 121, I would word like this. Every child of God will experience forever the Creator's continual protection. Protection is the key word of the psalm, our Creator's protection. Every child of God is promised in this song to experience forever the Creator's continual protection. It begins when the poet makes the comment, I look to the hills. This indicates that he is feeling threatened or vulnerable. He's feeling helpless as he looks to the hills. He's either thinking of the hidden dangers that lurk there, hidden dangers that lurk in the hills. Maybe the caravan on its way to Jerusalem is getting ready to pass through these low-lying mountains working their way up to the city. And they're thinking there could be thieves in those hills hiding behind the crevices and they're going to jump out on us and seek to ransack all of our goods. I think actually more likely he's thinking of the hills that Jerusalem sits in and he's thinking we can't trust these hills from, from an invading army. In the ancient world, cities were almost always built in hills. They were built behind hills or on mountains because this would have been much more difficult to attack by armies. In any case, the psalmist is saying, I look to the hills, and those hills are reminding him of threats. Maybe threats that are in the hills or threats that the hills are trying to protect people from. 
I look to the hills. I'm reminded of the the vulnerability, the helplessness of my life. And this is a constant human experience, isn't it? Feeling helpless, feeling threatened. The reason it's a common human experience is because even though we all like to imagine like we're in control, not one of us is in much control, right? We are vulnerable to so many things that are, by and large, out of our control. Things like car accidents or job losses, false accusations, germs, military invasions. The poet who's traveling to Jerusalem feels this vulnerability as he gazes on these hills surrounding Jerusalem and he asks, Where is my help? Where's my support? Where's my guard, my protection? They certainly can't come from these mountains. Hills can't protect you from attack. And then he asserts that God, the creator, can protect him. And he describes in the rest of the song three facets of God's character. The description of God in Psalm 121 begins in the first place in verse 2 with, your creator is your helper. Your creator is your helper. Verse 2, he says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That term helper means strong personal support. It's interesting, but this is the same term, yezer, that is used in Genesis 2 to describe Eve. He says, I'll make a helper suitable to the man, suitable for Adam. It's referring to strong personal support. And this term is in no way demeaning. It's godlike. Our strong personal supporter is our creator. Hmm. The maker of heaven and earth. Earlier this year, I was given a new photo book by Danny Faulkner called The Heavens, A Different View. Faulkner has his PhD in astronomy from Indiana University. He taught for, I think, almost 30 years at uh, University of South Carolina. And in his retirement, he's now been hired about 10 years now as the staff astronomer at Answers in Genesis. His book is full of beautiful photographs, not only taken by him, but a few of his colleagues. And there were two really unforgettable observations in his book. It was one in the chapter on the sun and the other in the chapter on the moon. He says, in both cases, there's just not enough time for evolution to make sense when it comes to the earth, the moon, and the sun. He says, one of the ways we know this is because the sun is slowly increasing in brightness every year. He said it makes very, very little difference to us over like a few hundred years or even a few thousand years, but it makes a huge difference over millions or billions of years. 3.5 billion years ago, according to the sun's increasing brightness, 3.5 billion years ago, the average temperature on earth would have been negative two Celsius. That's below freezing. And Faulkner observes There is no satisfactory answer for what scientists call the faint young sun paradox. 
Hmm. Later in his chapter on the moon, he points out that the tides demonstrate that the moon is slowly pulling away from the earth by about four centimeters per year. Not much. That's not much over centuries. But it means that the earth and the moon can't be billions of years old. For example, if you do four centimeters a year and you multiply it by, say, a million, that means that the moon would be 300 miles closer to the earth one million years ago. Multiply that by a thousand, we're running into major calculation problems. In other words, there's much evidence to suggest that the earth, the moon, and the sun could not have evolved over millions or billions of years. And instead, Psalm 121 verse 2 asserts what is intuitive for everyone. They were made. They have a maker. And this psalm teaches that the maker of heaven and earth is the strong and personal supporter of each person who submits to him, each person who belongs to him. We just need to think about this. The psalm begins by saying, your personal supporter is the creator. Hmm. The one who created all. Second facet of the song, your protector never sleeps. Verses 3 and 4. Your creator is your helper, verse 2. Secondly, your protector never sleeps. You see, the next stanza says, your protector is Israel's protector, and he never gets tired or falls asleep. When it says, Israel's protector is your protector, that means all of us should go through Israel's history and say something like, yeah, the God who protected Israel from the plagues in Egypt, he's my protector. The God who protected Israel through that generation in the wilderness and provided all their needs and protected them from marauding armies, he's my protector. That God who protected Israel from the Assyrian invasion with the angel who went out there and slaughtered the Assyrian army, he's my protector. That God who kept Haman from wreaking havoc on Esther's people, he's my protector. Israel's protector is my protector. And secondly, this protector is completely unlike any human. He never falls asleep. Every human needs to sleep. Our protector doesn't. He never sleeps. Twenty years ago, I read a devotional article in John Piper's Taste and See, and I've never forgotten it. It has led me almost every night that I pray with my kids, I pray something like, Lord, I thank you that you never sleep and you protect us even while we sleep. Piper wrote, we sleep a third of our lives. Just think of it. A third of our lives spent like dead men. Think of everything being left undone that could be done had God not designed us to need sleep. Sleep is a daily reminder from God that we're not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think we're in control and our work's indispensable. To cure us of this disease, 
God turns us into helpless sacks of sand. Once every day. How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as a suckling infant every day. Sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. Man's not sovereign. Man's not sovereign. Man's not sovereign. Every one of us needs to sleep. Our creator and our protector never sleeps. He never sleeps on the job. In managing this world, he never falls asleep. And in managing every little detail of our day-to-day lives, he never falls asleep. So one thing is for certain. If you've been in a car accident, it wasn't because your creator and protector fell asleep. If you lost your job, if you've been falsely accused, or if you've been diagnosed with cancer, it's not because your creator and your protector fell asleep. He doesn't fall asleep. He didn't fall asleep when those mishaps occurred. He never gets tired. He never sleeps. Hmm. That brings us to the third point where it's really climactic. Your guardian will let nothing ultimately bad happen to you. This is climactic. Your mighty, constant, untiring guardian, he'll never let anything ultimately bad happen to you. This is the final half of the song, verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. The poet first says, very picturesquely, the Lord is our shade from the sun, from the scorching of the sun. He's our shade. The promise in verse 8 is totally comprehensive. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whenever it's happening, now or forever, God will guard us, look at verse 7, from all harm or from all evil. And that forces us to ask, but what does it actually mean that God protects us? Really, what does it mean? Does it mean that God will never, ever allow anything remotely bad to happen to us? It can't mean that. Jerusalem was built in the hills. And Jerusalem, really at every point of her history, was attacked by invading armies. The poet who's writing this song, the human poet, apparently he he eventually died. And we know from our own experience and from reading church history that Christians throughout the centuries have often experienced horrific lives, horrific trials, even horrific deaths. So what does verse 7 mean when it promises the Lord will guard you from all harm? Well, it's been pointed out that the Lord must have a much different definition of harm than we have. And he must have a much different, a much more mature definition of good than we have. Read from just chapter 3 of C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. Lewis says, By the goodness of God, we usually mean nowadays 
almost exclusively his lovingness. And by love, most of us mean his kindness, his desire to see others just happy. That's what most of us mean when we say good. But he says, what would really satisfy us would be a God who said of really anything that we happen to be liking doing at the time, what does it matter so long as they're happy, contented? He says, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, just like to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Lewis explains that many people, including himself, have this concept of God's goodness lurking in the back of our minds. And yet, he admits, even though he would naturally like the universe to be governed along such lines, he says, I know that my conception of love needs correction. This means that we as Christians need to correct our understanding of love. And we have to interpret every situation that we say, that was harmful. God, you didn't seem to protect me then. We have to reinterpret it by faith. When we look at the worst circumstances of our lives, when we look at the worst circumstances that we've endured, we must say, my protector didn't fall asleep. If this was truly and ultimately bad for me, my protector would not have allowed it. What God allowed to happen must be part of his good and loving plan for my life. And I think I'll eventually understand more about how that was a part of his good plan. And I'll praise him for his wisdom. We must embrace the truth of Psalm 121 by faith. God, give me that faith. Give me that kind of trust in you. Today, if you are a Christian who is struggling with acceptance of some horrible thing that God allowed to happen to you, let me encourage you to go to the cross. It's there that you're going to be brought face to face with something torturously awful happening that could actually be worked in the plan of God for good. You're going to see there God's holy son spilling his holy blood. The worst crime ever in history. And you're going to say, God, I can trust you. Go to the cross. Go back to the cross. And if you are not a Christian, then I urge you to trust Jesus. Only he can reconcile you to your sleepless sovereign, the one who knows every detail of your life. Only Jesus can reconcile you to God and give you assurance that truly God will design all things to work together for your good and his glory.
You need to embrace the cross and never stop embracing it. Now, I began recounting the early life of Patrick, usually called Patrick of Ireland. If you remember, he was actually Patrick of Britain, and he was abducted while living in Britain as a 16-year-old by Irish pirates and made a slave in Ireland. By the way, if you want a good history, you can go on Amazon and get Mike Haken's history, Patrick of Ireland, his life and impact. Let me just tell you, there are so many strange stories that have grown up as legends around the life of Patrick, which you shouldn't believe. So many miracles attributed to him that didn't show up in history for hundreds of years later. Don't ever believe anyone who says that he used the three-leaf clover to teach the Trinity. Um, He was much more... (laughs) much more uh, biblical than that. Um, Now, Patrick is a little strange. You're going to read in his confession that monasticism was already beginning to grow in Roman Britain. Things like that were happening at that time in church history. But uh, very powerful life. I would encourage you to read about him, get to know him better. Well, Patrick is in Ireland as a teenager. And it was there that the gospel that he had heard as a boy and rejected as a boy finally sunk in. He was converted. He actually came to praise God, I'm quoting him, for such blessings that were bestowed on me in the land of my captivity. His life verse was Psalm 50, verse 15, where God commands, call upon me in the day of your distress, I'll set you free and you'll glorify me. Some of you need to do that right now. Call out to him in your distress. Patrick continued to outline his life story. He wrote, After I arrived in Ireland, I tended sheep every day, and I prayed frequently during the day. More and more, the love of God increased and my sense of awe before God. Faith grew. He's writing as an older man, probably in his 60s. He says, As I realize now, The Holy Spirit was burning in me at the time. And then he explained how after six years, around the time he was 22, he took a life and death risk. He ran away from his masters. He ran 200 miles away to board a ship that was heading for what is today France. It was called Gaul back in the day. He prayed that the men on the ship, who were a motley crew, He prayed that the men on the ship would come to faith in Jesus Christ and that God would give him an opportunity to share it with them. And that opportunity came a few weeks, about a month after they landed in France. As they were really uh, wandering through the forests in France, Patrick writes, food ran out. Great hunger overcame the men. The ship's captain turned to me and said, what do you say about this, Christian? You tell us that your God is all great and powerful. Why can't you pray for us, seeing we're in such a bad state of hunger? And then I said to the men with some confidence, Turn in faith with all your hearts to the Lord my God, because nothing is impossible for him, so that he might put food in your way, enough to make you fully satisfied. And Patrick testifies, With the help of God, that's actually what happened. A herd of pigs 
appeared in the way before our eyes. The entire crew of men feasted. And he goes on to record that there was not only enough for them, but enough for their animals. He was eventually freed from the ship's crew and reunited in Britain with his parents who had assumed that their son had died. His parents begged him to stay with them and Patrick eventually sensed God calling him back to Ireland as a missionary. He wanted to share the message about Jesus. He wanted to baptize those who were converted, organize them into churches, and if God gave grace, train leaders. Sounds like the missionaries who come through here pretty regularly. It was actually over 10 years later, after that reunion with his parents, after some theological training in Britain, and after he memorized a lot of the Bible in Latin, that Patrick returned to Ireland as a missionary. He says that he was driven by the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And God used him to spread the message about Jesus to thousands in Ireland over the 30 years that he was there. God made him effective, even though he often describes how frequently he was prone to temptation because he was alone. God protected him, even though he often experienced imprisonment, robbery, poverty, threats, accusations. His testimony describes some of these things. In the middle of his testimony, Patrick summarized his life. He says, So this is why I'll never stop giving thanks to my God, who kept me faithful in the time of all my trials. I can today, he's writing this as he's about to die, I can today with confidence offer my soul to Christ my Lord. Christ my Lord is the one who defended me in all my difficulties. Wherever I am, not only in good times, but in difficult times too, I praise his name. He has shown me that I can put my faith in him without wavering and without end. I've cast myself into the hands of Almighty God who is the ruler of all places. That sounds a lot like Psalm 121. My help comes from the Lord, Almighty, the one who made heaven and earth. If you have taken refuge in Jesus and you feel threatened, you feel vulnerable, you lift your eyes to the hills, as it were, and you wonder, where is my safety, my security, and my protection found? I urge you to actively trust your creator. He's your helper. Your protector never sleeps. Actively trust that your guardian, who never sleeps, will never let anything that is ultimately bad happen to you. Let's trust our creator. Oh, Father, give us this faith. You are the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave your one and only Son for us. Help us, Lord, to put the logic of your word over our feelings. You who didn't spare your one and only Son but freely gave him up for us all, how will you not with him graciously give us everything that's good? Oh, Lord, I pray that this would be decisive this morning in teaching us to trust you. Help us to reinterpret what you've allowed in our past. Help us to trust that your view of what is truly harmful 
and what is truly good is more mature than where we're at now. And may we trust you, our untiring creator, for Jesus' sake and our good. Amen.